Hello. And the ageing hack, Roger Bolton, no longer a bed blocker at the BBC. Welcome to my podcast in which I chew over BBC-related news but spit nothing out. Well, almost nothing. On Thursday, the corporation announced deep cuts to its world service and I'll be talking to the former presenter Mark Bardell about the state of BBC News, which is also cutting back on its 24-hour news services. Mark will also discuss some painful personal news. Well, I'm feeling fine and dandy, but I have to share with you that I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which means my voice is rather strange and weak. I'm getting used from... I haven't lost my vulvar, but I've lost a bit of my boom. Now, the BBC's licence-free is, of course, frozen, but inflation is going up rapidly and will get worse. Something has to give. And this week, the corporation announced that the World Service will lose 382 jobs in order to make a saving of £28.5 million. Now, among the many changes, it will stop producing radio output in ten languages, including Chinese, Hindi and Arabic, and BBC Persian will end its audio broadcasts aimed at Iran. There'll also be a change in focus of the World Service's English language radio output, with more time dedicated to live news and sports programming at the expense of standalone programmes. Until 2010, of course, the World Service was financed separately from the rest of the BBC via a grant from the Foreign Office. Now its funding has to come out of the licence fee, although the government has occasionally given extra grants in the past for specific services. Not this time. A BBC spokesperson said the UK Foreign Office had been consulted over the latest cuts and no country would lose its World Service content altogether with digital operations continuing in all languages. Well, this is some of the reaction to the announcement on Twitter. Luke on Twitter. If I understand this right, the BBC World Service will now have to stop broadcasting on radio to China, a terrible loss displaying the devastating impact of efficiency cuts, which will further diminish the UK on the international stage. Will on Twitter. The BBC World Service reaches more than 300 million people a week, many of them in Africa or the Middle East, with critical and balanced coverage. It's one of the great British institutions. It should not be spat at by frothing at the mouth commentators or have its funding cut. Jamie Angus, who was the director of the BBC World Service Group until last year, tweeted, In many cases, the BBC is having to close services that have been invested in for years steadily building huge audiences in regions where free access to trusted information is not a given. It's such a terrible waste. Now these cuts are of course part of a wider package of measures to meet the £258 million savings needed by the end of 2027 due to the two-year licence fee freeze by the government. As inflation gets worse, so do the BBC finances. Well, to discuss the impact on BBC News of this continuing financial squeeze, I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Mardell, the former BBC presenter. In his 30-year career, Mark was Europe editor, North America editor, and, of course, before he left the corporation nearly two years ago, the presenter of Radio 4's The World at One and The World This Weekend. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. It's been nearly two years since we last spoke. How are you? Well, I'm feeling fine and dandy, but I have to share with you that I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which means my voice is rather strange and weak. I'm getting used from... I haven't lost my vulvar, but I've lost a bit of my boom, and um, I'm getting used to being the quietest person in the room rather than the loudest. 
but um, brilliant seems in the stage of just being annoying rather than anything terrible. So uh, I'm feeling fine, thanks. When did you first get these symptoms? Well, I started thinking at the beginning of the year, waitresses are making their packaging really hard to get into these days. What's this about? And then I found my arms suddenly lifting above my head for no particular reason, or at least staying there. So in May, and then a friend saw who was a phys- used to be a physiotherapist and hadn't seen me for a couple of years, spotted it and um, sent me off to the doctor. And this is strange, isn't it? There seems to be rather a rash of former BBC journalists or presenters who are, are getting Parkinson's. I mean, Rory Kathleen Jones, of course, and Jeremy Paxman. Is there any possibility of this of suggestions related to a great deal of, for example, air travel or anything else? What's your doctor told you? They don't know why. There does seem to have been a worldwide increase. I mean, one of the things is people are just living longer. Maybe I'd have dropped dead in my 40s in the past so that you would never get to this stage. But the other curious thing, which I hope they are investigating, is she said, well, of course, people don't smoke these days. Yeah, well, so what? Evidently, tobacco, and this isn't an advice to young people to start smoking, but tobacco is a block against Parkinson's, and I hope they are seriously investigating what element of it it is so they can turn it into a pill or something for people. But that's apparently one thing, but they don't really seem to know why it's on the increase, if it is on the increase. But no no suggestion it's the atmosphere in New Broadcasting House or anything like that. It must have been a very big blow, though. Here you are, just retired from the BBC, presumably thinking of, I don't know, if you wanted to sail around the world or do something dramatic like that, and this puts pretty much a full stop on those sorts of activities, doesn't it? Well, sailing around the world, I guess, and it's not great for broadcasting, it's not great for my freelance career, because it makes the other thing it does, as well as the voice, is makes typing really, really slow, and the voice memo stuff that I'm using isn't great, and you just have to edit all the swear words out when they misinterpret you. So, sailing around the world, and never I've never been very physically active, which Maybe why I've ended up here, but um, but I'm mean, certainly travelling. Yeah, I mean, actually, the drugs they put you on. The one thing they're really worried about is it makes you impulsive because it's to do with the dopamine supply, and so they're constantly checking: Are you doing anything didn't used to do? And the one thing I could come up with is impulsively booking a few holidays. But they put down my nose. He's always been a keen traveller, but uh, I said watch for gambling because it's the one vice I've never had. So if I start gambling, you know there's a problem with the pills. Well, I'm sure everybody listening and anybody who learns about this will wish you well. And uh, your voice may be weaker, but I see your brain certainly isn't. And I want to talk to you because you've got a great deal of experience of BBC News and you've always been a very, how can I put it, dispassionate observer, loyal to the BBC or to public service broadcasting, but always spoken, you know, you always spoke your mind. Uh, and we've just heard this week about these cuts, you know, 300 jobs and services, the World Service all resulting of from the freeze, the two-year freeze, license fee freeze by the government, and, of course, inflation taking off. And last week on our podcast, Richard Eyre, a former BBC Trust member, said the cuts were becoming visible or audible. He said, uh, and I think he had a view in particular about some of the online, you know, taking quite a while. BBC News was not quick now, overnight in particular, to update its stories. Have you noticed anything uh, that makes you think that actually the output is now being seriously affected? Well, I mean, output is going to be seriously affected. Richard said it was visible. It's going to be darkness visible as far as the, for instance, Urdu TV is concerned. That's being scrapped. There's the Yorba radio is being scrapped. 
So people who enjoy the world service services will notice those going. I actually thought in the cuts there was a bit of politics going on because they've also cut Farsi radio, Arabic radio, something I'd have thought, at least when this was designed, Boris Johnson's government with his vision of a global Britain would have wanted to keep going. So I wonder whether they thought, aha, the government and the Americans won't let us cut this bit of soft power. So we'll have a go. But in terms of BBC Online is, is, is my first go-to service in the morning, but it's never a great favourite of mine. So I haven't noticed whether it's slowing uh, updates overnight. Of course, people always do accuse the BBC of threatening to you know, cut the most popular thing in order to pressurise government. And in case of the World Service, the uh, Foreign Office can occasionally still, though it's not funding directly the World Service, it can give some money for specific services. You think the BBC might be suggesting, well, if they, um, you know, say, so, say they're going to cut the Arabic service, there'll be a revolt in the backbench Foreign Affairs Committee who will say to government, you just have to shell out? I don't think it'd be backbenchers. I think it'd be more directly from the government themselves. I mean, they may have misread that because, as I say, Boris Johnson had an ambition, not much flesh on its bones, but there was an ambition for a global Britain with increased soft power around the world. Now, if you're trying to do that, cutting the Arabic service, cutting the service to Iran at the moment looks crazy. Now, what Liz Truss believes in foreign policy or anything else, I could not tell you at the moment. Well, I could on some things, but what the foreign policy ambitions are, I've I've no idea. So whether it will work there, I doubt. But I think that was just when I read it. I had no inside information or anything, but I mean, it just seemed to me cutting those services was clearly running in the face of what any government would want. And what the Amer- I think more, more importantly, perhaps, what the Americans would want us to do. What can Brits do for us? Well, the BBC is one thing, the World Service is one thing they can do, we can do for their ambitions in the world. Well, this is not the only thing, of course, BBC News is cutting. It's decided or made an announcement in July and is still negotiating with the trade unions about combining two channels, the sort of 24-hour news, BBC News Service and the World Service News. Do you think that makes sense, given that the BBC has to make significant cuts? And they don't want to make these cuts. I mean, it's not they're not doing it will, willfully, as it were, or because they don't think the services are any good. They have to find money somewhere. And one of the things you do is you centralise things, don't you? And the combining these two news channels into one means the loss of some jobs. Obviously, it felt hard by those people who have faced redundancy. But does it matter to the listener and the viewer, do you think? Yes, it matters. It matters. But, I mean, I have great sympathy with the view that you're giving voice to there, expressing that they've got to make cuts. They've got to make cuts somewhere. I've never been a great fan of the live channels, News 24 or BBC Live or whatever you were meant to call it now. World Service has always been good, but, I mean, it's not a domestic service. I think combining it is an agony for many people. It will diminish the service. It will diminish what, what we're trying to do. But you've got to make cuts somewhere. And what I was about to say is that I haven't noticed any bits of scenery falling over or broadcasters falling off the air. But what you don't know is the scaling back of ambition. If you have less money, what dramatists are not being commissioned to write brilliant plays? What correspondents are not being sent on? Not the obvious assignment, but the exciting, interesting, different assignment. What people are not being based in places around the world? I'll tell you one place they're still, and this is an old bugbear of mine, I probably said it last time we talked, still haven't got a China editor. What is the most important country in the world? And Sudworth has been sent off. He was exiled, unfortunately, from China, went to Taiwan. He's now based in the States. 
So I, I don't know. I mean, I presume there is somebody. Yeah, no, I talked to him yeah, on feedback about uh, two months ago. It's one person covering the whole of China. Now, to be fair to the BBC, they would like to get people in, more people in. But I think, and there are some problems with visas and so on. But at the moment, that great country, probably the most, what, powerful country in the world after America, has one BBC correspondent covering um, a landmass of a scale that we can hardly imagine. Yeah, and I mean, I agree. It's probably almost impossible to broadcast for the BBC from China. But you base somebody in Taiwan, you base somebody in Singapore, you ring the region with people. I am glad that I see in the World Service plans they're setting up a something called a giant uh, China global hub in London. What that quite means, I don't know. But if they're paying China more attention, I'll give two cheers until I see what it's like. But back to the two channels that they're combining, the worry for some people in this country is there may be a diminution in coverage of this country. In other words, as I understand the new combined channel, it will be run overnight from the States, run overnight from the Far East, run during the day from the UK. And the worry is that if something dramatic happens domestically in this country at the time when BBC isn't in control, editorial control from London, for example, there's bound to be a diminution of domestic British news. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, you know, the first time there's a major disaster overnight and the BBC doesn't cover it, there'll be an inquest and hopefully government will see the errors of its ways. I'd hate to... Well, I'd love to be a BBC boss, actually. (laughs) But, I mean, I I hate the choices they're faced with. And and clearly, Tim Davies has been saying that, hasn't he? There's an agony of choice about what do you get rid of. No, when last spoke to you, you were concerned, uh, you know, a couple of years ago with the centralisation of... This is what's going on, centralisation of commissioning, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, It means you're going to narrow the range of stories. You're going to hit the important stories that people know about probably, but you're going to miss some important stories that people don't know about because nobody's going to find out about them. You were worried that, you know, programmes, editors on programmes like Today and The World at One no longer had the freedom and the resources to commission enough of their own stories and get out and about. The problem with all of that is you don't know the stories they're missing because they're missing. That's quite right. Exactly. Without scenery falling over, you don't know what you're missing. But, I mean, I think you can hear, if you listen carefully or if you just listen casually, really, you can hear that there aren't as many reports from reporters. There aren't as many people going out. Certainly, I mean, just to blow my own horn, um, the sort of stuff I did for the world this weekend, going out and doing lengthy reports, not just the Vox Pop in the street. Yes, I hate it. Yeah, I love him. You know, sort of actually talking to people, finding out what's behind it. That's gone. Now, what they are doing is sending presenters all over the country. What, to stand in front of a building and to read a script that they've been handed and they just got off the train that they could read in London? Yes, and that's the problem. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the Today programme and PM and World at One. I, I did a bit of that for it, and it does work, can work, but you have to be judicious. I mean, when we did it, we were talking specifically about Brexit in various different regions. If you just go to Cornwall and so do one bit on isn't the arts lovely in Cornwall and one bit on the agricultural problems, and then you find you've got a massive story in London or wherever in the world, and it just gets paired back and it doesn't quite work. I think the old way of just sending a reporter. But, but haven't we seen a glorious worth of local radio recently with Liz Truss's round did she get hammered? Yes, she got hammered by those local presenters. She thought it would be less difficult than if she went elsewhere. I mean, the problem with a lot of this regional coverage is that it's the regions as perceived often by the centre. 
not the center in not the regions saying something terribly important and transmitting it to the center that's the real issue that must worry a lot of people but how you get out of it and cut costs at the same time is extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, you, it, it is difficult. I think you value local radio more. I mean, when I was in commercial radio very briefly, even before my 30-year span, reaching back to the time of the dinosaurs on the BBC, I was in commercial radio. And when I was at Radio Tees and Radio Air in Leeds, we competed with each other to get stuff on independent IRN. You know, could we get a bulletin piece up there? It's a real mark of... You got 20 quid for it, I think, as well. Yeah. But, I mean, it was... You know, so the mark of prestige, I've been on IRN, I've got my local story on IRN. If they could do that a bit more with the 1800 or, you know, it's one way of getting stories on. Well, of course, the BBC and uh, this Director General in particular has made a great thing about uh, emphasising the importance of impartiality, something, of course, that, you know, as a lifelong BBC person, you knew nothing about, did you? You didn't bother, nobody taught you about impartiality. Strange. It's a a bit strange to be told from the boss of the BBC that you have to be impartial. (laughs) Obviously, he's got a problem with government. He's got to say something. So he's saying, you know, stress on impartiality. Do you think there are dangers in confusing impartiality and due impartiality? I mean, you don't have to be impartial between right and wrong, black and white, do you? No, I mean, that's the problem. It's a slightly curious word. I mean, you know, yes, like any public service broadcaster, ex-public service broadcaster, I believe in the values of impartiality. And so one cheer when he said, let's stress that. But of course, my immediate thought was, well, we, as you suggest, well, we haven't been impartial, Ian. You're saying we haven't been impartial. And I think he was sort of saying that to the Conservatives and the government, tap on the side of the nose. Yeah, we've been a bit naughty, a bit left wing. But doesn't he have to do that? Isn't he doing two things? He's tapping his nose, if you like, to the Tory part, and then he's saying basically to insiders, look, you're doing well in impartiality, but just reinforce it. We just happen to make any mistakes. Uh, Doesn't he have to be to that extent as Director-General, talking in two directions at once? Try and satisfy the government with their obsession that the BBC is partial and so on, and at the same time say to the staff, just make sure we are, but keep going, you're doing a great job. Yeah, that's one interpretation, and I think it's reasonable that he does do that. I mean, I think that I, I, you know, I sort of raise my eyes to the heavens that he's trying to reassure the government. And I think there's, there's a, the opposite danger, of course, is people take it too seriously and think, well, we must pull our punches. And I, I mean, I constantly hear friends, and I'm a bit confused by this, to be honest, because I constantly hear friends who you might be really surprised are nearly all Remainers saying, The BBC just dodges the difficult issues on Brexit. And listening, I think that's absolutely true. They are dodging the difficult issues. They aren't investigating it. But I also know as a presenter, nobody ever came over to me and said, Mardell, you're too tough on this Brexit stuff. Just leave it alone. It's boring. So how does does it happen? I guess because old souls like me disappear. And, you know, the old phrase, we're old and ugly enough to get a bit of bruising. But, Mark, let me go back on your experience in North America as North America editor. We've just seen the new owners of CNN telling their news teams to effectively become more impartial when dealing with Donald Trump. I think the investors were concerned by a drop in profits and that nobody who is a supporter virtually of the Republican Party anymore or wanted to listen to CNN, and they want to correct that. But, of course, the people, a lot of people in CNN who now left say you can't be impartial when you've got one person, Donald Trump, lying, or at the least in denial, about a democratic election result and, in many people's view, threatening the democracy. In the end, you can't be impartial about democracy. 
do you think that's a real debate that will come to this country? It might do. I think it's a really, really interesting example because obviously it's disgusting if, if it is true, as the report suggests, that corporate pressure has made them go to the right. This is, this, this is CNN, yes. Well, at least pull away from the left, shall we say, yes. But I will say that I, I was quite surprised by the level of partiality in American broadcasting against Trump. You're right. You know, I mean, this is the difficult thing about term impartiality. What are you, as you say, what are you partial to? Are you partial to lying? Are you partial to storming the Capitol? Are you partial to authoritarianism? No, you're not. But I think you have to give him a fair shout. And he doesn't always get that. I think things they have been leapt on that Trump has done that wouldn't have been leapt on if other people had done it. And I think, and, and I did say this in the last time we talked, I think it's really essential. You look behind it. You know, he's not one mad guy. He's a, one mad guy who's got loads of supporters. And yes, you call him a liar, but you look at why they like that lies, why, why they're supporting him, what it is about it. And don't give up on the analysis, I would say. On the analysis, but on the facts, uh, if, if somehow Donald Trump keeps saying the election was rigged, the ballots were false, uh, I won the election, do you just say there is no evidence, there is no evidence, there is no evidence? Or do you go further than that and say, well, Donald Trump has been shown there's no evidence, so why is he going on to deny what he knows to be the truth? It's that moment where you go from, as it were, giving the facts to giving an interpretation that gets is so difficult, isn't it? Yes, it is so difficult. And I think that's a good example in that what do you do that in? You do that in an interview, perhaps. You do it in a lengthy analysis piece. You don't put in, in every news bulletin, Donald Trump, the liar, says blah, blah, blah. I think it depends when you... I mean, I think we had a good example this week. I mean, I am very worried about false equivalence, the idea that you just stick somebody on to balance. The earth is round. No, let's have somebody else saying it's flat. And I think we've seen a good example recently with the, what should I call it? It's not, it's not it wasn't a mini budget, was it? It was a huge, massive budget. Maybe it was a, following Putin's example, it was a special fiscal event, not a war. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think we've seen there that the BBC hasn't, bent over backwards to find people to say, this is a fantastic budget, it really works. It's all Putin's fault, it's all Keir Starmer's fault. Yeah. They, they have put on John Redwood and stuff. I mean, part of, part of the reason for that is that um, there aren't that many people, even Liz Truss's own economists say it was too quick. But I was very pleased, and I, I guess some people will be very angry to hear Faisal Islam did a report on, on this, and he said absolutely clear as daylight this is uh, the turmoil in the markets has been caused by the tax cuts and tax cuts to the rich in particular and then later on had a minister contradicting that so he was willing to nail his colors to the mast because it's true because it's true <laughs> and that's objective and that's impartial I was quite uh, taken when uh, Amal Rajan the ubiquitous perhaps we should always say Amal Rajan commissioned research which showed that 70% of newsreaders across the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Sky speak with received pronunciation. I think the suggestion was that the BBC is too posh and that you don't hear enough regional accents or whatever. You were born in Hillingdon, just west of London. Did you alter your accent to get on? No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, 
I didn't alter my accent. Well, drop my Illington roots. No, I, I've always spoken like this, and my parents had posh voices, even though they weren't particularly posh. But I think, you know, just as, as an aside, I think, I don't know if this is true of you, but I heard, I've heard various broadcasts over the years, including me, me going back, and you find that in the past we did speak a little bit more like the Queen or Mrs Thatcher. Yes, terribly tight, you know, slightly almost, yes, as if you're like this. Of course you did, but, I mean, I, the thing that makes me a bit irritated about all this, I suppose I altered my accent. I was born in Carlisle, had a slight northern accent, and only very strong, occasionally there. The main thing is you want to be understood, speak clearly, and particularly older listeners, whose hearing maybe not, you know, as great as it once was, need people to speak clearly. And if people keep dropping letters and... You know, and so on. It's actually quite difficult. And I, do we really want people, everybody, to speak with estuary accents or Leeds accents or other ones? I mean, I don't mind what the accent is as long as it's clear and precise and people use the words in in a proper way. Does it really put people off? Do you think your accent put people off? In my own view, people wouldn't have would people would have noticed. They just listened to you because you were clear and reasonable. Yes, I think that's that's true. I think that. And accents are a funny thing. I do like regional accents, and you do hear a lot of them on Radio 4. But I think received pronunciation is, in some ways, just as you say, clear and precise. I mean, does Amal have a non-received pronunciation? I mean, he hasn't, hasn't got a very strong accent, has he? No, but he does drop uh, endings to words and stuff like that. Uh, listen, when I was on feedback, people were always writing in saying, oh, A is on everything, and B, um, we, his voice, he keeps dropping, you know... Dropping letters, can't he speak properly? Now, of course, he'd be wrong if he, you know, dramatically changed the way he spoke. But the assumption that everybody has to be matey and friendly and, you know, like that, you know, it's a relief sometimes when you hear uh, Susan Ray, for example. You used to hear Susan Ray with that beautiful Scottish, probably Edinburgh voice, reading the news. But it was because she had a, you loved it, because she had a beautiful voice and you could hear every word. The Scottishness was perhaps, you know, the last thing that was important about it. I mean, accents are a funny thing. I mean, that my uh, my wife's family, her brothers and, and uh, her siblings, I mean, two of them have got very strong London accents. Two of them haven't, including my wife, who's got to receive pronunciation. No difference in their education, just the way they decided to speak, I think, really, and kept with... <laughs> even, uh, and, but, I mean, I'm slightly contradicting myself here, but I think it's also... A matter of class, isn't it? I mean, it is very much a matter of class. And what class? Sorry, you're talking about class. Sorry, did you say class there? Oh, I thought we were talking about class. I'm talking about yeah, class, mate. Maybe you'll understand if I put on an accent a bit more. That's the dwarfish accent from Ring of Powers. And... <laughs> no, I mean, I, what, what I was saying is, is that if you want people not to have received pronunciation, and I think this goes into something else that's being said about the backgrounds of people in broadcasting. It's a matter of social mobility. I mean, the reason you don't get working-class London accents on is because working-class London people don't, as a whole, make it into the BBC. I mean, whether they're presenters or producers. And that's because, you know, they haven't been... I mean, obviously, I'm not saying your original background and your original accent dictates that, but as you say, a lot of people have lost their accent over the years. Well, you and I could probably both agree that less Oxbridge people, since we didn't go there, less Oxbridge people and less public school people in the BBC would be a good thing. Yeah, we can agree on that. We can, yes, absolutely. Uh, The other thing I was going to ask you about, though, was whether, uh, to what extent the BBC 
risks alienating, do you think, the older audience by its focus, increasing focus on young and the diversion of resources towards podcasting and so on and trying to find people, young people where they are. And that what's driving all of this is the fear that the younger audience, uh, potential audience, will not get the BBC habit. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's a genuinely uh, rational fear? Yeah, I think it is a rational fear, but I think that they're placing their eggs in the wrong basket. I mean, if you want to do that stuff, there's plenty of ways to do it and um, without tampering with Radio 4. That's what uh, annoys me, is that this desire to put a comedian on with a philosopher in, every, you know, in a rowing boat in the middle of the Atlantic to discuss serious issues, to make them hip and cool for the kids. Now, my kids watch loads of stuff on YouTube. They don't know what it's, where it's from. But it's serious stuff, and it's often very badly delivered in a fake American accent. But it's actually content-rich. So I think people are after content. I mean, not everybody will be, of course. But I think there are young people who, who want good stuff and want to listen to good stuff. They don't care whether it's... I mean, the other thing is, how much do you... I mean, I don't look at TV and think, oh, great, it's an old bloke. He's 65 like me, so I care what he says. I won't listen to this 20-year-old. If they're talking common sense or talking saying something interesting, I'll listen to them, whatever their age is. So we shouldn't confuse the, the means of distribution, which obviously have to change, with the content and the quality of the content, which does not necessarily have to change. Yes, that's right. And, and you know, that's... I mean, they're, they're careless about losing older broadcasters. I don't know if you can think of any examples of people who... My no, face might no uh, longer fit. Yeah, actually, by the way, I've no complaints at all. You know, I, I, you know, would have liked to have been a bit longer, but heavens above, I had a good run. So, but I mean, you know, I'm a, um, a hack. I do get aggravated that if anybody has suggested to David Attenborough, of which I'm not remotely like David Attenborough, that he should stop at the age of 65 or 75. I mean, it's ludicrous. Please continue as long as possible. There are certain people, yes, should bow gracefully and get out, but certain people just stay going on doing it if you can, as long as you can. And are they really nurturing young talent? I mean, John Sopel, Maitlis, I'm not terribly sad about losing them. I've listened to their news agent. It's, it's good. I, I you know, don't mind them leaving the BBC at all. But taking Lewis Goodall with them, who's somebody I identified as you know, future political editor, future star, I think, really good. I can see that maybe there's impartiality issues there. Do you think they're careless with that sort of talent that actually, you know, don't worry about the, the presenters as much, worry about the people, you know, uh, the people who matter really, the producers and the editors and people who are going to find good talent? Yeah, and that's something Tim Davies been stressing, saying, oh, I don't care about these 3% of presenters who've left. It's the producers. Well, yeah, but it's the same ecology, isn't it? It's the same pull of people like Global and Times Radio which is, I think, is a good thing for broadcasting to have strong competition. But it's they, the producers live in the same world, and the producers live in the same world where there's this callous disregard for people. I mean, the last thing I did for the BBC was a documentary on Brexit, and I was working with people from the Current Affairs Unit who'd just been told that they had to move up to, I think, Salford. I may be wrong on where it was they had to move. They had to all move, reapply for their own jobs and move up there. These people are either have partners who work in the capital or they've been there a long time and they've got young kids in school or older kids. I mean, they, the BBC knows these people are not going to reapply for their jobs. You might do that in your 20s. You're not going to do it in your 30s, 40s and 50s. So you know you're losing talent there. So how dare he say, on one hand, you know, I, I care about the producers we're losing, and then 
allow moves like that go on. Well, that's another big argument, which is a northerner. I have a view of that as well. We'll have it at another time. But finally, Mark, before we go, I mean, what, what gives you real pleasure, the things that you listen to at the moment? Are the things you switch on and you think, ah, oh, that's re- still really good? Yeah, I did try to look when I was asked to think of something for a producer and a, a, a philosopher and a comedian in a rowing boat off the Atlantic, but I couldn't find anything. So I'll stick with Melvin Bragg in our time. Plato's Atlantis. You always learn something. It should be compulsory in schools at A-level to listen to Melvin Bragg. He's a master broadcaster. He's the best they've got. And I just love the way that, you know, he treats subjects extremely seriously, very erudite, but also has fun. He has fun with When you listen in long enough, he has fun with the guests. He teases them. He prods them. He tells them off when they're being trivial or not moving along fast enough. And the Plato's Atlantis, I thought I knew a fair bit about Plato. I learned something, huge amount about him and, and the Atlantis on that programme. And what gave it a special, you felt that the academics, they often very bend over backwards to be really nice. They were being polite, but they clearly had very different views and maybe, maybe even didn't like each other and thought one of them was a bit jumped up. And it was just such fun to listen. Gold. Oh, radio oh. gold. Mark Mardell. Mark, thank you very much. Hope we'll talk to you again soon in the future. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Just before we go, we've had our very first email from Liz and Gordon Matthew from Geneva. We were delighted to hear that you have started your own podcast. We are and will continue to be ardent listeners and fans. Thank you. Keep up the great work. With your help, I will try. And yes, some listeners have asked for some plinky-plonky music. Jazz is the suggestion. Let's see what we can do. Remember, do get in touch on Twitter by using at BeebRoger, or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com. And just so you know, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and produced by Kate Dixon. It was a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>